Let us now open the Word of God to be taught by Him. Our text this afternoon comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings 18, we'll be focusing especially on verses 20 through 40, but we'll read the entire chapter. The context for this chapter is the famine that had set in because of the, the Israelites worshipping Baal, and so God had sent Elijah, and, and Elijah had brought news of a famine. So, 1 Kings 18, verse 1 begins... And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into all the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. So he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when... Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid one hundred men of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here, he will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. 
But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Therefore let them give us two bowls, and let them choose one for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bowl for yourselves, and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bowl which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he took the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood." Then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. 
Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So far, the word of God. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we read about these kinds of confrontations that happened between the prophets of of God against the Israelites who worshipped Baal, it can be very easy for us to, to look down on the Israelites and think, how could they be so foolish as to forsake the living God to worship a block of wood or stone or, or something like that. It seems very obvious to us now, how could anyone be seriously tempted to, to fall into that kind of idolatry? And we tend to assume we would never do such a thing. So before we even get into the details of this chapter before us, I think it would be helpful to think honestly about that question. Would we have been tempted to worship Baal like these Israelites were tempted. If we're not able to be honest about that reality, then we can't expect this chapter or really any part of 1 Kings to be helpful to us. Let me offer five reasons why this probably would have been a struggle for us as well. First, we have to realize hindsight is twenty-twenty, as they say. It's very easy for us to look back now at the Israelites and to judge them for their unfaithfulness because we know how God punished them for that. But they, of course, lived in the moment. They lived in their time, and it would have come down for them, just like it often does for us, on whether or not they trusted God's Word at the time. And we know, of course, that's a struggle that every generation Uh, faces. Secondly, every generation has its own cultural pressures. Now, ours might not be to fall down and worship a block of stone or wood, but in their world, everyone worshipped Baal or some similar god. So it's very easy for us to say, well, we would never fall into that kind of idolatry, but we shouldn't assume that just because we don't live in that world. Instead, we ought to be asking ourselves, well, how do we resist the cultural pressures of our day? Every generation, in the end, has its own unique struggles and and pressures and temptations. And our, our faithfulness and our courage is not going to be measured by how well we fight yesterday's battles, but how well we fight today's battles. Future generations might very well look back at our generation and wondered how we could have been so foolish uh, in the face of the cultural pressures of our day. Third, there was also political pressure to worship Baal. It was the officially sanctioned religion in Israel at the time under Ahab and Jezebel. Now, there was, there was no problem if you wanted to worship Yahweh and Baal, but if you insisted on worshiping Yahweh only, then you were seen as an agitator, and they had their ways of making agitators disappear. Just look at what happened to the prophets that died under Jezebel, or the ones that Obadiah had to hide in caves. Let's be honest, when our homes, our lives, or our businesses, or our families are on the line, it's a lot harder to be faithful to God's Word. Fourth, 
Baal worship also spoke to what mattered to most people. Baal was the god of fertility, of rain and, and storms. And, and Israel, of course, was an agricultural society, kind of like Owen Sound. They, they were farmers, and so many of them would have thought, many of them would have thought, if there's a chance that worshiping Baal is going to help us grow our crops, well then, we may as well give it a shot. At that time, of course, everyone believed that this really worked, that Baal worship really was the solution to drought. And then finally, Baal worship was also a lot easier than the worship of Yahweh, and it offered a lot more immediate gratification. Baal never demanded that anyone be perfect. They just had to live up to a a fairly simple religious schedule or, or requirements. And Baal worship didn't demand a lifelong sanctification the way that, that God does. And not only that, but Baal worship also offered temple prostitutes. So the men could go to, to the temple and sleep with the beautiful women or, or very often young girls who were enslaved to work there. And they could do that as a service to Baal. It would have been seen as a very sacred and, and beautiful and religious thing for them to do. They were also male homosexual prostitutes for those who, who wanted that. And, and the, whole, the whole practice of Baal worship in that time with all of those pleasures was considered artistic and beautiful and religious and, and, and very deeply spiritual. So it's easy to imagine how people might have just accepted a little bit of Baal worship into their, their Yahweh worship. It's easy to understand how they would have accommodated to the cultural pressure of that day. So when we study texts like this chapter, it's good for us to stop and, and to be honest and realistic about how well we would have really faced those same uh, temptations. Now, of course, it's true. They, they had God's word, and they should have trusted God, and they should have been faithful to God in spite of all of those pressures. The Bible makes no excuses for them, and, and I'm certainly not making excuses for them either. We shouldn't. We're supposed to judge them. But we should be willing to also see ourselves within those stories, not simply judging them as as people from the outside who never would have fallen into those same mistakes. We should realize how much we really are like them, and then we can also repent where God's Word is calling us also to repent. So we need a frame of mind where we can learn from a story like like 1 Kings 18. So with that said then, here's our theme for, for this text. We'll see in this chapter how the Lord graciously takes the initiative to bring His people to repentance. And we'll see in this text at least five things that God does to accomplish that. And I'll just list those for you now and then we'll turn to our text and we'll see those in the text. This list is not meant to be exhaustive. This is not the only things that God ever does to bring people to repentance. But this is what you see in this chapter. First, we see God confronts our unbelief with His Word. That's in verse 21. Second, He shows the impotence of our other gods. Verses 23 through 29. Third, He reminds us 
who we really are. That's in verses 30 to 32. Fourth, he shows us who he is as God. That's verses 36 to 39. And finally, he blesses us when we return to him. That's in 41 to 46. So first, he confronts our unbelief with his word. In chapter 17, which, which you didn't read, of course, ahead of time, but in chapter 17, you, you first encounter Ahab, and he was one of the most popular kings in Israel. You might not get that impression when you read about him in the Bible, because the Bible consistently portrays him as an evil and wicked man, but he was one of the most popular kings in Israel. He was very good for the economy. He expanded their, their borders and their military. So he was a very popular king, but he brought in the worship of Baal with his wife Jezebel, who also worshipped then Asherah, which was Baal's, Baal's consort god, the, the goddess that, that worked alongside Baal. And, and in chapter 17, you can read about how God first punished the people for worshipping Baal, and God did so by taking away the very thing that Baal was supposed to be very good at. So I mentioned a moment ago, Baal was the storm god, the god of rain and fertility, and so God punished Israel by taking away the very thing that Baal was supposed to be good at, which was the rain. So God sent the prophet Elijah to go and tell Ahab that he would punish Ahab and Israel by causing the sky to dry up so that there would be no rain except at his word. And that's exactly what happened. For three long years, there was a famine in the land, the land wasting away. So that brings us then to chapter 18. And verse 1 opens with these words, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now we can already, and I hope you notice this, we can already see God's graciousness in these opening words. That's why I wrote the theme the way I did, that God takes the initiative to bring his people to repentance. Because they hadn't changed yet at all. There's no indication that they stopped worshipping Baal. In fact, every indication is they were worshipping him more fervently than ever. And yet, God sent Elijah to Ahab because he wanted the punishment to be over. He wanted to send rain to Israel. So we see even God's first words in this chapter are words of grace and words of mercy, wanting the, the drought to finally be over. Well, skipping the next so many verses, Elijah meets Ahab in verse 17. And, and the text says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? You just have to stop and think, what an unbelievable greeting for Ahab to give to Elijah after all that Ahab had done to bring judgment on Israel and to destroy the religion of Israel. He sees Elijah and he says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? If you, if you just think about the whole story of Ahab, what a twisted response or twisted greeting that is. He still, in his mind, he sees all of the drought and all of the, the problems as somehow Elijah's fault. And isn't that really the way of sin? To blame God 
for the consequence of our sin. To get upset with God or with those who bring God's word, perhaps the elders also, to get upset with God over confronting us instead of being upset with ourselves because of our sin. And so Elijah, of course, immediately picks up on on the fact how twisted this is, and he responds in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and worshipped the Baals. So So we see here, this is the very first thing that God does to confront his people in sin. He brings them his word to confront them. And we need to see that that's an act of grace. It was a gracious thing because God intended to bless Israel with rain. He wanted the discipline to be over. And I think one of the the big reasons, just, just jumping to a point of application, one of the big reasons we don't read scripture ourselves in private as often as we should is because God's word often does the same thing to us that we see God's word doing here with Ahab. He confronts us in our sin and it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it. When we, if we read God's word with an open mind, thinking seriously about, about its implications for our lives, God confronts us through the reading of his word and it makes us uncomfortable and we think well why should God trouble my conscience when I have enough things going on in my life I have enough to worry about I don't need God's word to also now add to the burdens on on my mind but that's what God's word does it addresses our sins it demands change and repentance maybe even confession and so we avoid God's word and and for many of us that's that's one of the big reasons that we avoid reading God's word in private because he does the same thing that we see him doing through Elijah and we tend to think God's word is the troubler of of my life but of course God doesn't send his word to punish us does he He sends his word to confront us, to change us, to call us back to himself because he wants ultimately to bless us. That's what we see here in 1 Kings 18 and and it's so often true in our own lives. Our sin, of course, is the problem, not God's word that confronts our sin. But anyways, that's, that's, that's all you get from, from Ahab. From this point on in the chapter, maybe you noticed, Ahab never speaks again. Those were Ahab's last words in this chapter. He had his chance to repent, and he made it clear he wasn't interested. He didn't want that repentance. And so we see the story simply moves on from Ahab. From this point on, Ahab becomes simply a tool in God's hands to reach Israel. God's not primarily here concerned even with Ahab. He's concerned primarily with his people, Israel. So from this point on, Ahab simply follows Elijah's orders. God uses him as a tool. So Elijah tells Ahab in in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And that's what Ahab did. Well, actually... That's not entirely what Ahab did. Maybe you noticed it yourself. Ahab went and he got the 450 prophets of Baal. But did you notice that in the rest of the chapter you never hear anything about those 400 prophets of Asherah who, who ate at Jezebel's table? 
In fact, in verse 22, Elijah tells the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. But no mention of the prophets of Asherah. And then again in verse 40, when the the whole contest is over, Elijah tells the people to seize and to kill the prophets of Baal. But notice again, no mention of the prophets of Asherah. Well, what's the reason for their absence? We can only speculate, but notice that Elijah mentions that they ate at Jezebel's table, which meant that these prophets were under Jezebel's uh, orders. And so you can, you can pretty easily reconstruct what probably would have happened. Elijah would have gone off to the palace and, and said, hey, Jezebel, guess what? I, I, I met Elijah, of all people. And she would have looked at him sideways like, and you didn't kill him? And he says, no, 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 Elijah went and told me to go and bring all the prophets to Mount Carmel, so let's go and get your prophets and let's, let's go there. And again, Jezebel would have looked at him thinking, are you crazy? You're following Elijah's orders. Aren't you the king in Israel? And so Jezebel understood what was going on here. She understood that to obey Elijah's orders would be to acknowledge that he had authority from God. She's, she's a little smarter than, than her husband. And you can see just from, from the, if you're reading between the lines and the missing details here, you can see already who wore the pants in, in that royal family. So Jezebel and her prophets never showed up, but Ahab and his 450 prophets did show up on Mount Carmel. And that's where the text takes us next. We find all of them gathered there on Mount Carmel. And so far, nobody, not even Ahab, only Elijah actually knows what's going on, what they're there for. Elijah hadn't told Ahab what he was going to do. And then in verse 21, Elijah, it says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? And those words are critical to the understanding of, of this entire chapter. In, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew, the word that's translated falter is actually limping. It's, it's a literal word. How long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Now those, those words from Elijah are easily worth a sermon all, all on themselves. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? Because here's a universal truth, and it's true just as much today. As long as you haven't made up your minds about who or what is God, then you can't possibly expect to serve Him either. You can't expect to run well if you're crippled by conflicting beliefs. If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God or if anything else is God, then follow that. Isn't that a universal truth? You'll never never produce efficient service if you're crippled by conflicting beliefs agnosticism, which is the the belief that who knows really whether there is a God or who knows what's ultimately ultimately true, agnosticism is really just an excuse for inaction. It's a refusal to commit one's life to anything at all, which is a very easy position to live by then. And so what Elijah encourages the Israelites to do is make a decision about who or what is God and then go with that decision all the way. 
Go big or go home. Build your life on a conviction about what is true and what is especially ultimately true. Don't try, and this is just as much an application for us today as it was for them, don't try to have God and Baal or money or sex or admiration or popularity or pleasure or anything else. Don't try to let both be half God in your life. Make a choice and then live by that choice. Because really, in the end, if God is God, He's not going to be satisfied with halfway service. He won't accept the excuse that we really weren't sure who was, was God. He's a jealous God. Think of what Jesus, the Lord Jesus Himself says in Luke 14, if anyone comes to Me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Jesus must mean everything to his disciples, or their faith will be fruitless and their lives will also be useless. If God is God, then he's worth living for, he's worth everything. And if he's not, then he's not worth wasting your time. Think of the parable of the the hidden talent that the Lord Jesus, or the hidden treasure, excuse me, that the Lord Jesus told, and, and this. Jesus compares the kingdom of, of God to this man who finds a treasure buried in a field and, and in his joy, he does what? He sells everything in order to get that treasure. It's one or the other and he realized that is far more valuable than everything else that he might have lived for on this earth. Or think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If, he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Imagine what kind of sacrifice and what kind of commitment someone has to be making to make a statement like that. That if my hope is in this life only, I am of all men most to be pitied. Are you willing to take that kind of risk in your walk of faith? Are you willing to, so to speak, place all of your eggs in that one basket, which is the Word of God and the promises that we have in there? Are you willing to risk being a man or woman of conviction who believes what is true? So Elijah confronts the people of Israel, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Well, the text says the people didn't answer him a word, and understandably so. They, they would have seen immediately that he was right, that they really were limping between Baal and Yahweh, that they refused to really make any commitment at all. So they found themselves limping along, serving both, but, but really serving, serving neither. So that's the first thing that God did to bring his people to repentance. He confronted them with his word. The second thing he did was to show the powerlessness of their gods. I already mentioned it's not a coincidence that God specifically deprived Israel of the rain because that was supposed to be Baal's specialty. And now after three years and still no repentance from Israel, God called his people to a showdown. And again, recognize how gracious God was to do this. He didn't have to prove anything to the people of Israel. They ought to have simply believed his word. 
But God had the graciousness to prove himself and to disprove Baal before all the Israelites. So Elijah proposed a showdown to the prophets of Baal in verse 23, and all the people agreed, it is well spoken. And you can only speculate what was going on in the minds of these people. Probably some of them were standing there thinking, well, it's about time that both of these gods show themselves for who they are, that they show us what they're really made of. Probably a good number of them didn't think either God was going to answer by fire. And you can imagine they were, they were probably watching very closely to make sure no one, none of the prophets were sneaking up with a lighter behind, behind their different sacrifices. So then Elijah told the prophets of Baal to go and prepare their bowl and to put it on the altar. And you notice also how the prophets of Baal simply complied with, with Elijah's orders. It's very clear who's in control here in, in this event. That God is sovereign even over the hearts of unbelieving priests of gods that are no gods at all. And so he directs even their decisions according to his will. It's a very clear picture of the sovereignty of God, just like you see with Pharaoh when God uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would ultimately be judged. So the priests of Baal did as Elijah ordered. They called upon Baal from morning until noon, crying out, Oh, Baal, answer us. And you have to hand it to these prophets that at least they really believed that Baal was going to do it for them to go through all of this, this effort. They clearly at least believed in their God. At least they weren't limping along. These priests, at least they had made a decision about who was God. But of course, they chose the wrong God. And our text really underlines that and emphasizes that for it. It tells the story as dramatically as possible saying, there was no voice Nobody answered. And so the text says they leaped, or actually literally in the Hebrew, it's again the word limped, it's the same word. They limped around that altar that they had made. And probably the text uses that word limped again because they would have been walking a couple paces and then falling again on, on their knees, trying to cut themselves open and, and win bales favor by beating themselves up. And so the text picks up on the whole picture and says, look people of Israel, you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. People who worship a powerless God become powerless and pitiful people. It was true of those gods that worship Baal and really it's just as true of people today who worship any other god or person or thing than the true God. You become like what you worship. Now you notice Elijah was just merciless with, with his sarcasm in this event. Now maybe we think that wasn't a very Christian thing for, for Elijah to do, to, to ridicule them this way. But there is a time and place for rightly ridiculing other gods. And before you feel sorry for these prophets as they're limping around and Elijah's mocking them, don't forget that these are the people who wanted and oversaw all of God's, people, all of God's prophets being executed. These are also the people who brought slave girls to work in their temples as prostitutes and who also made claims about Baal's power at the expense of the spiritual lives of God's people. So these are con artists and they're caught in the act. So Elijah tells them in verse 27, Cry aloud, for he is a God. 
And he continues, either he is meditating, or, or actually literally that, that says he's relieving himself. In other words, maybe, maybe, maybe Baal needed to go to the bathroom, or perhaps he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and, and needs to be awakened. Well, amazingly, the prophets of Baal, they just receive that sarcasm, and they actually obeyed Elijah's orders. So they cried out louder, and they started cutting themselves and prophesying before the altar like madmen. And of course, the text tells us again, there was no response. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. God demonstrated how absolutely powerless Baal really was to help And realize, congregation, it was God's justice to do this to Baal, but it was also God's mercy to do this for for His people Israel, to show them the powerlessness of the God that they were worshiping. He could have left them to their powerless God. They had His Word. His Word ought to have been sufficient. They ought to have known better. But we see God here graciously intervening even in the middle of their idolatry because it's His intention to ultimately bring them to repentance. That's the God that He is. And the same is true for us when He shows us in, in often very painful ways, in ways that leave us with much regret, but He shows us also the powerlessness of the gods that we're tending, that, that we tend to worship or that perhaps we have been worshiping for, for many years, whether that's money or prestige or power or pleasure or, or even some kind of empty idea of, of spirituality. God graciously shows the powerlessness of that. That's a painful experience to realize how powerless our gods are. But it's a merciful thing for God to do for us. He does so as an act of grace. And we're going to see now in the third point, God even takes that grace and mercy a step further, which is the third thing that God does here. He reminds His people who they were. When the time of the evening sacrifice came, finally Elijah had enough. These prophets of Baal, they had all day, and Baal was clearly not going to answer. It was obvious to everyone he was no God at all, just an invention of idolatrous minds. And so Elijah called all the people to himself, and then verse 31 is is striking because it breaks the flow of the narrative. Perhaps you picked up on that as you read through the chapter yourself. It says, Elijah took 12 stones, and then it adds this, this parenthetical statement, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And why does the, the author stop here to add this little cross-reference back to, to the life of Jacob? Well, he did so because Elijah chose those 12 stones deliberately to remind the people of who they were. This is clearly an intended focal point in the story. He didn't just rebuild the altar in any way so that he ended up with an altar, but he made the point as he rebuilt the altar to do it with 12 stones to remind the people of the covenant that God had made with the 12 tribes of Israel, not just the two northern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. 
So maybe, maybe some of the people as they watched Elijah rebuilding the altar with those 12 stones, maybe some of them stopped to think about it. What had happened to them as a people of God? How far they had fallen since the time of their father Jacob. Probably their father Jacob would not have even recognized this Baal-worshipping people that were his descendants. See, what happened is their loss of conviction had ultimately led to a loss of identity. And you see that so often with churches also today. They lose their conviction in the truth of the Word of God, and it's not long before they lose their identity as Christian churches. So the people of Israel, too, they they let themselves forget who their God was, and as a result, they ultimately forgot who they were. But now Elijah takes the time to remind the people of who they are. They are the children of Jacob, who once walked with with the Lord, with whom the Lord had made a covenant. And they might have forgotten that, but Elijah makes the point, God had not forgotten them. He hadn't simply cut them off to be the God of the two northern tribes and leave those ten idolatrous southern tribes on their own. No, God still counted twelve tribes as, as his own. They were still his people. And so when Elijah built the altar this way, it was a calling back to, to Yahweh. It was, he was calling Israel back. They still belong to their God, even if they've forgotten him. God's promises are still theirs if they'll repent, even after all of these years. And it's so important for the church to remember this as well. Also those churches that have gone astray and forgotten who their God was. When God makes a covenant, He keeps His covenant. It doesn't matter if you walk away from the Lord for 60 years. You may have forgotten who your God is, but He has not forgotten who His people are. The promises we receive in baptism are our promises for life. We may forget who we are, but God still doesn't. And if we turn back to Him, He still receives us as His people. So that's the third thing God did. He showed His people who they were. Fourth, God shows us who He is. Elijah built a large trench around the altar, and then he had the wood and the bowl all laid onto the the altar as would normally be done. But then he must have surprised everyone with what he did next. He told them, fill four jars with water and pour that on the burnt offering and the wood. And then he has them do it again and and then a third time so that you'd have 12 jars of water. Again, reminding the people of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was so much water that it overflowed the altar and filled the trench that Elijah had dug. So nobody can accuse Elijah here of, snicker, uh, uh, of sneakery, uh, sneaking behind the, the altar and, and lighting it in, in secret because it wouldn't have done any good on a, on a soaking wet sacrifice. And then at the time of the offering, Elijah came near to the altar and prayed. And notice it's just a simple prayer. God doesn't demand dramatic service or penance or cutting oneself with, with knives or falling over oneself as a as an expression of one's repentance. He doesn't expect us to impress him with what we can do, but to trust him for what he can do. And that's what Elijah saw, and that's why Elijah simply prays. And God answered Elijah's short 
simple prayer. And the fire of the Lord fell down from heaven and consumed that soaking wet sacrifice. And not only that, but even also the water in the trench and the stones and even the dust. So the Israelites would have been left looking at a smoking crater where that altar had once stood. And that too is important for them, to, for that to have settled into their minds. God showed his people who he is, not just his power, but also his wrath. Don't forget what sacrifices were. They stood and represented the people. And so on that altar also was a bull representing the idolatrous people of Israel. And surely many of the people, when they saw the fire coming down from heaven and they saw a smoking crater where that altar once stood, they would have gotten the point. There should have been a smoking crater where they were standing instead of where the altar stood. Well, the the people immediately fell down on their faces like any people would when confronted by that kind of power. And they finally confessed what Elijah would have been longing for so many years to hear. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That's the only appropriate reaction to such a show of God's power. Well, what about the prophets of Baal? We can only imagine the fear that would have suddenly struck those con men as they stood and watched that altar being consumed by fire from heaven. And and, and don't forget again, these are prophets who had overseen the prophets of God being executed before their eyes. So in verse 40, Elijah immediately ordered all the people to execute all 450 prophets of Baal. He gave them no opportunity to escape, just like they had given God's prophets no opportunity to escape. And so that's exactly what the people did. They rounded up Baal's prophets and Elijah executed them one by one. Now that ending to this story might be shocking to some of us in the 21st century. We might think, was that ending really necessary? Didn't God already accomplish his purpose when the Israelites confessed the Lord his God? Why go to, to these extreme measures But brothers and sisters, this is the God that we worship. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Human life that spits in his face is not worthy of living before his eyes. He puts a price on sin, even though that's a far higher price than we ourselves might put on it. For him, the sanctity of human life, which might be an argument that we raise against God. In fact, many commentators on this text do raise that argument against God. The Old Testament God has no respect for the sanctity of of human life, they say. But for him, the sanctity of human life means that it must not be preserved when it ceases to represent the God in whose image it was made. This is the true and living God whom we worship. And when we read stories with endings like this, it's a reminder for us to humble ourselves and accept the fact that our God's ways are much, much higher than ours. So the thing that that really should amaze us 
is really that anybody survived this event at all. Because the fact is, nobody here deserved to survive. And none of us here in this church deserve to survive before such a God either. Because the same inclinations to that idolatry, those same temptations exist within us. And if you're honest with yourself, you've given in to them just as often as these Israelites did. The amazing thing is that God gave his people an opportunity to repent and that when they did, he preserved their lives. Well, fifth and finally, we see God also blesses us when we return to him. And I'll keep this brief. In the last verses of the chapter, we see that the people went up to eat. But notice, Elijah, instead of going up to eat, Elijah bowed with his face to the ground. It says his head even between his knees in the ultimate position of humility before God. The people had repented, and that meant that God's curse could finally be lifted. But you notice Elijah doesn't take that for granted. He pleads with the Lord with his face to the ground. He recognized that even though Israel had repented, they still didn't deserve rain. God still didn't owe them any blessing. And so instead of taking that for granted, Elijah prayed to God and pleaded with him to bless his people once again. It's a reminder for us also in this church to always have those kinds of people in this church, to be those kinds of people, praying for this church, praying on behalf of this church, recognizing that we don't deserve any of the blessings that God gives us. We're reminded also of what what the Apostle James wrote about this event when Elijah prayed that the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. God hears those kinds of prayers. We we sometimes think our prayers aren't going to actually change what God does because after all God is sovereign. But we see here God listened to the voice of Elijah and that's consistently how prayer is described in, in Scripture. And so we see now at the end of the chapter, God does indeed send rain. Blessed, undeserved, sweet rain. Now if you think about it, the real blessing isn't even really the rain. The real blessing is the repentance that God brought his people to. The blessing is that God compelled his people to turn back to him when he could just as well have left them in idolatry with all the rain in the world and it would have been to their eternal damnation. So the real blessing is fellowship with their God. God's love and God's favor are, of course, infinitely more valuable than, than rain. Far better to die of hunger in the desert in the sweet fellowship of the Lord than to have abundant fertile fields without him. But God did also bless Israel even with rain as a testimony to, to the return of his favor. And that's how we should also see the blessings that we enjoy among us as well. Sweet undeserved blessings that God gives us on top of the greatest blessing of all, which is the blessing of knowing him through, through Christ, the love and favor of God that we have through Christ, which is equally and even more undeserved than rain or children or any other blessings that God might give us. The repentance is the greatest blessing of all. 
So brothers and sisters, learn from the God that you, that you find here in 1 Kings 18. This is our God. He calls us to himself. He takes the initiative to bring us back to himself. He breaks down our idols. He reminds us who we are. He shows us who he is. And he blesses us when we return to him. May it never be that we go astray like the people of Israel did. But if we do, since there is no one who does not sin, may God then do the same for us. Graciously, if painfully, calling us back to himself. Because in his presence, as the psalm says, is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.